This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Today on the show, a feature interview with Professor Simon Chesterman, the Dean of Law at the National University of Singapore, and he's also the Senior Director for AI Governance at AI Singapore. In his new book, We the Robots, Professor Chesterman makes the case for a new global agency to regulate the development of artificial intelligence. Now, the type of agency he has in mind would be rather like the International Atomic Energy Agency. We'll hear his thinking on the matter shortly, but first, the deficiencies he sees in our current thinking around artificial intelligence and the law. So one of the problems with regulating new technology is that you don't know what you don't know. And so I think around the world, governments are torn between two alternatives. One is the fear of constraining innovation. So they don't want to drive innovation elsewhere. They know AI is going to be enormously beneficial economically. And if the regulations are too tight, then it'll drive it elsewhere. So that's one kind of problem. But when governments do act or when policymakers think about acting, I think they're also constrained by the imagination of science fiction. And science fiction has been enormously helpful in thinking about technology over the decades. But in this case, I think we're all subject a little bit to thinking about AI in terms of human-shaped robots going around with human-level intelligence. And so people like Isaac Asimov over the years came up with rules for robots, the famous laws of robotics. And what people forget about that is that his laws didn't work. Most of his literary career was based on the fact that these laws didn't work. Nonetheless, what we've seen when people have thought about regulating AI is this idea that we've got to come up with new principles, new rules, and there have been literally hundreds of these by sort of industry associations, individual companies, governments. The Pope endorsed one last year. And the problem is that misconceives the problem of regulating AI as being both too easy and too hard. Too hard in that there's this idea that we've got to reinvent the wheel, that we've got to come up with these new principles, guides, frameworks, and so on, rather than just saying, apply the law to AI like it would apply to anyone else. They think it's too easy because once you come up with these rules, there's this assumption that they would just apply to the AI, when in fact, it's that application of laws to AI systems that is the most challenging. And that's where I think the work really needs to be done. And that tendency that we have to head towards the very speculative, the sci-fi side of looking at artificial intelligence, that's why in your book you draw a distinction between narrow AI, as you call it, and general AI. Could I get you to explain that difference and, and its significance? Sure. So general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence is the idea that we create some kind of synthetic entity that is able to exercise cognitive functions, so able to think like humans in any domain. And if we ever get to that point, it won't stop there. If we could create something as smart as us, it will almost certainly be able to create something smarter and so on and so on. This has been sort of speculated about since at least Turing. And that's not inconceivable. And one of the striking things in the world of AI is that people are warning about the apocalyptic threat of artificial intelligence are among those most knowledgeable. So people like Elon Musk has put in tens of millions of dollars of his own money into research to guard against this scenario. So I think it's got to be taken seriously, but no serious researcher thinks that this is in the immediate horizon. 
So it's one worth thinking about, but not, I think, paralyzing ourselves over. Although, again, for science fiction, it's uh, real fodder for investigation. The near-term problem is narrow artificial intelligence. And this is what I'm talking about. Basically, machines that can do things using skills that would normally be done by a human, in particular, cognitive skills. So you're thinking about autonomous vehicles, but also non-embodied things. So it doesn't have to have a physical manifestation. It doesn't have to be a robot. It could be a system that makes decisions. And we see increasingly governments around the world, companies relying on algorithms. So when Netflix, for example, is suggesting your next movie choice or the bank decides whether you get a loan or not, there are almost certainly algorithms that are making those determinations. And one of the key questions is to what extent we want to hand over those decision-making powers to machines. And maybe on movie recommendations, maybe you're more comfortable having a machine rather than some Netflix employee saying, oh, Anthony, watch this. Maybe he should watch this other thing. But when it comes to government benefits, I think most of us start to get a little bit wary about handing over that power to machines. And if you go one step further to things like lethal autonomous weapons, the idea that you would deploy AI systems into a battlefield, making life and death decisions. At that point, I think most people would say, hang on, something really needs to be done to pull back that kind of technology because we're not comfortable transferring that kind of morally sensitive set of questions to a synthetic decision-making system, at least not yet. So our immediate priorities really should be on that narrow form of AI because that's the AI that's, that's affecting our lives now and likely to affect our lives in the near future. Exactly. And this was the, the gap in literature that I was trying to fill, that it, the literature tends to focus either on that kind of extreme question of superintelligence, and there's a whole literature on whether robots should have rights and personality. But at the other extreme, people focus on narrow technologies, so just on autonomous vehicles or particular professions, like what happens to lawyers, when I think there are kind of more thematic questions in the middle that address not the apocalyptic concern or how we manage a particular technology, but how governments in particular should be thinking about this, how those who want to get the benefits of technology while minimizing the risks should approach this set of questions. And that's really the gap in the market that I was trying to fill. Much of the discussion around artificial intelligence, regulation and the law has focused on the United States, on Europe, and only just recently on China. That's understandable, I guess. But what does that discussion lose from having such a narrow focus and not drawing in the experiences and the concerns of other nations? I think that's a really important point, that this technology is global and it's going global. And I think one of the reasons for the shift to embrace China more, which you correctly point to, is that China has become one of the powerhouses of AI research. And in recent years, there was a tendency to say, well, of course, China's going to be a leader in AI because to do AI well, you need data and China doesn't care about the privacy of its population. It just vacuums up huge amounts of personal data. And that's partly true. And you can contrast it, for example, with criticism within the European Union that the EU's data protection rules have limited its ability to become a leader in AI. At America, you have the kind of market dominance of some of the big players like Facebook, Google, and so Microsoft and so on, who are very active in this area. But more recently, I think there is this realization, at least on the part of some, that Asia in general and China in particular needs to be at the table. And it's unfortunate that there aren't really global forums where that conversation is taking place. So one of the big forums, for example, is the Global Partnership on AI, 
which the United States was long wary of joining and then eventually decided to join a year or so ago, precisely because China was being excluded. So I think there does need to be a global conversation, because if there isn't, you'll have these kind of poles that will operate. So the European Union will have its very right-centered approach. The United States really uh, tries to privilege the market. And at least until recently, China was very much focused on a sovereignty model with national security, one of the prime considerations, data localization, one of the requirements that China would impose so that the personal data, so that the, the data that was underlying decisions would be held within Chinese territory and therefore subject to Chinese law. You have seen a slight shift in China with the adoption this year of the personal information protection law, the effort to clamp down on some companies, but it's still a very state-centric model. And so if you had that sort of future, if you play it out, where Europe focuses on rights, America on markets, China on sovereignty, then you'll lose one of the great benefits of the internet, which is precisely its ability to, to bring us together and to, to open markets to everyone. Now, I want to come to your proposal or your suggestion for the establishment of an international artificial intelligence agency in just a second. But just picking up on your point there, are smaller Asian nations, small but but still important, like Singapore, like South Korea, are they starting to agitate more for a kind of say in the way in which the world handles artificial intelligence? So I think there is a desire for clearer rules of the road. There is a desire for some measure of certainty, but there's also a huge fear of missing out. And so Singapore, for example, quite explicitly in a review of its penal code two years ago, said we're not going to impose criminal regulation on AI because no one else is doing it. And all it would really achieve is to drive innovation elsewhere. At the same time, Singapore has adopted a model AI governance framework. And those two words, model and framework, are intended to make clear this is not sort of hard norms that are being proposed. This is a way of thinking about it. And they, Singapore and South Korea, Japan, other countries really want seats at the table, if at all possible, so that they're not going to be subject to the kind of great power rivalry that you could imagine with the European Union staking out its position with draft regulations adopted in uh, in April this year. America, of course, dominating the market in terms of the, the big commercial actors from the United States and China exercising outside influence just because of the, the size of the Chinese economy. So I do think there is a desire to be involved in these discussions, but I don't think Singapore or South Korea or other countries really want to be at the forefront of regulation. They prefer to be at the forefront of thought leadership, if you like, and that's one of the things we're trying to do at AI Singapore. But I think most of them would accept that in many areas of global competition, some of the smaller countries are going to have to accept that they will be rule takers rather than rule makers. Now, this idea of an international artificial intelligence agency, in your book, you raise it as a possibility for the future. And you, you say it could be modelled, such a body could be modelled on the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency. What would the benefit of that approach be for artificial intelligence? So this is, again, the problem of the unknown unknowns. And as I was thinking about regulation, clearly governments will be important. You need state regulation, and I'm not at all suggesting that there should be a global body to take control of everything. I think self-regulation will be very important. I mean, the main thing that will ensure that we get the benefits of AI while mitigating the risks and minimizing the harms is the decisions that companies make and that the market nudges them towards. But unless there is some level of global regulation, it is too easy for this technology to just move around the world 
And so unless you have some kind of effort at the global level, you can't really enforce any of the red lines that I think we need in terms of, for example, stopping lethal autonomous weapons being given the power to make life and death decisions. You need a global ban, otherwise they can be too easy to produce. And so the idea was really after looking at different efforts to regulate new technologies, it really struck me that nuclear energy did suggest a possible way forward. And so going through the history of nuclear energy through the 20th century, a couple of things were, were striking. One was that this was a technology being developed in the 1940s, where the scientists realized that there was enormous potential for good as well as ill. So even as they were working on the projects that became the Manhattan Project that led to the nuclear bombs that devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they realized that this was an energy source that could produce energy much more cleanly and efficiently than other alternatives at the time. And there were these ideals of electricity that would be too cheap to meter. Now, we didn't end up getting all of those things, but at least that thought experiment, I think, is worth pursuing because the deal that was struck in the 1940s and into the 1950s, because after World War II, the very first resolution passed by the United Nations General Assembly was an attempt to try and limit the harm that nuclear energy could cause in terms of weapons, while spreading the benefits that it could offer in terms of technology transfer. That's what ultimately led to the, the grand bargain at the heart of the International Atomic Energy Agency. And so I thought, well, this is something analogous to artificial intelligence today. You have a small number of countries that have access to cutting edge technology with enormous potential benefits, but also real potential for destructive capabilities. And so if you had something like the IAEA, what I call the IAIA, the International Artificial Intelligence Agency, then you could have that deal where countries with capacity, countries like the United States and China, would agree to share some of that technology with countries around the world so that they get the benefits of the AI optimization and all the other things that come with AI. While at the same time, the deal would be you get those benefits in exchange for a promise not to weaponize it. So not to weaponize it in the way that I've been talking about in terms of lethal autonomous weapons, and also to guard against that possibility of a rogue or a, a malignant superintelligence that was uncontrollable or uncontainable. So the idea is this grand bargain that uh, you would try and see benefits as we saw with nuclear energy, both in terms of power supplies, medicine, agriculture, and we've seen all of those benefits. Power supplies still remains a little bit controversial, but medicine and agriculture, nuclear energy has been transformative around the world in exchange for a deal that you wouldn't do the equivalent of uh, exploit nuclear energy for the purposes of creating nuclear weapons. And although nuclear weapons remain a threat, it is kind of striking. And indeed, it would be probably pleasantly shocking to people from the 1940s to find out that 70 years later, you only have a handful of countries with nuclear weapons and have never been used in anger since the end of World War II. So that's at least the hope with the IAIA. And you're listening to Future Tense, an ABC Radio National production. I'm Anthony Fennell. Today, a feature interview with Professor Simon Chesterman, the Dean of Law at the National University of Singapore and author of the new book, We the Robots. Simon Chesterman, what would smaller nations get out of the new international AI agency that you're proposing? Is your expectation that aside from security and stability, they'd also have a better chance of sharing in the benefits? 
Exactly, and that that would be the attraction. That much as the IAEA has played a role in what was originally called by Eisenhower "Atoms for Good," you could have AI for good, and indeed there are AI for good conferences that have been held by the International Telecommunications Union, among others, trying to promote the benefits of artificial intelligence in achieving things like the Sustainable Development Goals. And I think around the world, the ability of AI to help less developed countries, in particular, to develop is considerable. I mean, you consider, for example, the way in which mobile phones have enabled many countries to leapfrog telecommunications because they never had to build the massive landlines that were used for much of the 20th century. If you could have something similar with AI in terms of、uh, leapfrogging stages of development, then the potential to have a positive impact in in small countries, in poorer countries, is great. And one would hope that if the trade-off for that is a promise not to weaponize this technology, most of those countries, hopefully, wouldn't be planning to weaponize it in the first place. So, if you could have that kind of grand bargain, have that technology transfer in exchange for a commitment that the technology would be used for good rather than ill, it sounds somewhat idealistic, but it kind of worked with nuclear energy in many parts of the world. And could that kind of international agency could it be a better way? Of trying to set common standards or common benchmarks, if you like, for say best practice. Yes, and this is one of the real challenges: how you would get global consensus. Because at the moment, I mentioned the Global Partnership on AI, which excludes China. You do have a few sets of principles, but they tend to be either so general as to be unhelpful, or they're very sort of focused on particular regional groupings. You could conceivably go to the United Nations. The problem with that. Is that if you went through, say, the International Telecommunications Union, that's an organisation so old that its original name was the International Telegraph Union, then you would have a real lowest common denominator approach. If it's a universal body, then I think there would be a real challenge if you've got to get the United States, China, but also the European Union, North Korea, Russia, all agreeing. I think that's going to be difficult. So I do think you want some kind of voluntary organisation where states can buy in. But can buy in not only metaphorically that they get、uh, involved, but also in a quite literal sense that they see it's in their interests. And so the hope again is, if you have countries with access to advanced technology, the United States and China, I think, are slowly beginning to realise that although they might be the most able in terms of things like lethal autonomous weapons, a world in which lethal autonomous weapons, that is, sort of drones that go around making kill decisions on their own, a world in which those Lethal autonomous weapons are widespread. Is going to be much more unstable for everyone, and so if you had countries again like the United States and China saying, "Okay, it's in our interest to limit the harmful side of this technology," and in order to achieve the benefit of a world without lethal autonomous weapons flying around everywhere, we're prepared to support to invest in other countries, then that would be quite useful. And our commercial sensitivity is going to be a problem there because. You know the major developers of AI. They're not necessarily doing it thinking that AI is a public good. There's money to be made, isn't there? There is, and no, I'm not overly、uh, idealistic about the role that companies would play. I think companies exist to try and make money. And when Facebook starts saying we want regulation, when Google starts saying we want regulation, I do get a little bit wary because one of the reasons they claim to want regulation is because they want a particular type of regulation. I'm talking primarily at this stage about governments, and it's probably worth being clear that I'm talking about a very, very minimal role at the international level. The international level is useful in setting standards, but also in setting red lines. 
And here, other kinds of technology might be useful to, to throw into the mix just to show that we can agree not to go down particular paths. If you think about the global limits on chemical weapons, on biological weapons, those are other examples where countries have said, okay, these things are so dangerous, we're going to draw red lines. And then it's a matter of the countries themselves enforcing these red lines on companies. If a company wants to develop a biological weapon that would go worldwide, the first point of call is going to be national regulators that should stop that happening. And there are international processes that are intended to provide early warning. The reason I focused on nuclear energy is that although there are dual use in chemical weapons, that the nuclear energy metaphor of that sort of ability to use energy for good rather than ill is a little bit clearer. But the role of companies will be to sort of push at the limits of innovation. And indeed, that's one of the reasons why I think we shouldn't rely solely on self-regulation, because I think you do want companies to push to develop new products, to develop new technologies. And it's a role of governments that exist to ensure that the market doesn't lead to disastrous consequences. So that's true in terms of the weaponization of AI. It's also true in terms of discrimination based on AI. So even if you discovered, for example, that you could optimize processes that would lead to more efficient outcomes, but that was on the basis that you were discriminating based on sex or race or sexual orientation or something, that's where governments should step in. You shouldn't just rely on the goodwill of companies. I think companies exist to make money and Although there is uh, an increasing focus on ESG, environmental sustainability and governance limitations on companies, I think that if there are red lines we want to enforce, then we need state-based institutions to do that. And to coordinate those state-based institutions, you need at least a thin layer of international organization to make sure that states aren't either free riding or that you have a kind of race to the bottom in terms of lowest common denominator regulation. One could argue that any law is only as good as the ability to enforce compliance. And our experience in the international law context is that enforcement is often problematic, isn't it? Why would we expect that it would be any different with artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's a great question. And the hope would be, again, if we look at nuclear energy, obviously we've seen some breakout violations of the non-proliferation treaty, North Korea, a prominent example. You've got India and Pakistan, you've got Israel. But at the same time, you've had great cooperation on trying to track nuclear materials. And things work best when there is a clear set of goals and it's clearly in the interests of member states to cooperate. And that's why I think the red lines that we would draw at the international level need to be very, very limited to pretty clearly outrageous things that we should all oppose. For example, creating lethal autonomous weapons that are making individualized kill decisions. I think most people intuitively have a visceral reaction to that. Maybe they think of it in terms of the Terminator-style movie. Now, that doesn't really concern me why people feel this, but I think most of us would agree that there should be some kind of human human decision-making that goes into those life-and-death decisions. Similarly, the idea of an uncontrollable or uncontainable AI that could start turning against its creators, I think most of us realize that's a pretty bad thing. And so the hope would be that nation states around the world would agree because only when they agree and they support enforcement will international law actually work. I mean, even the UN Security Council, the most uh, sort of powerful international organization or part of an international organization on the planet, the UN Security Council's resolutions only work when member states agree to make them work. That's why I think you need this sort of buy-in. It's not going to be top-down regulation. The UN, for example, doesn't have a police force to go and force states to comply. You need to craft the regulation 
so that states around the world say it is in our collective interest to comply with this and to ensure compliance. And again, we've seen examples of that happen in chemical weapons, biological weapons, but also certain aspects of environmental law. If you think of the ban on chlorofluorocarbons that was passed after well, we discovered what we were doing to the ozone layer. I think it is possible to have international compliance, but you've got to make sure that the states want there to be compliance rather than just relying on wishful thinking. It's certainly an intriguing idea. Is it feasible? I mean, could you see uh, this kind of agency coming to the fore in the, in the not-too-distant future? The argument against it is that the comparison with nuclear energy is flawed. I accept that it's a limited analogy. I mean, nuclear energy is a well-defined set of processes that depends on access to specific materials that are unevenly distributed around the world. Nuclear weapons are expensive to build and hard to hide. AI is a technology that is much easier to develop. It's much easier to hide. And so, yeah, there'll be real challenges in pursuing this in a, in a real practical sense. The reason I push for it, though, is that I'm projecting forward sort of in the medium term and the long term. The medium term, we have already seen lethal autonomous weapons deployed in Libya, a drone that was making individualized kill decisions. This is not theoretical. We've seen even in Australia a couple of months back, an AI system be acknowledged as the inventor for the purposes of a patent. Projecting forward a little bit, the idea that there will be uncontainable or uncontrollable AI will become more and more realistic in the next five, 10, at least 20 years. And so the hope is that around the world, governments will see it as being in their self-interest. The desire for some kind of regulation at the international level will emerge. And I'm really positing this as a global alternative to what we will see otherwise, which is regional arbitrage. So the European Union has put out a marker in April this year with its draft regulation, which could become law in a few years. You've got the global partnership on AI, you've got the Beijing principles, uh, but unless there is some kind of global regulation, the danger is that the potentially harmful aspects of this technology will move into a regulatory space that is more welcoming to them. And I don't think we want to do that. Another technology that you could draw a comparison with is human cloning. And again, most of us have, I think, a uh, kind of visceral wariness of cloning of humans, at least of live embryos. And so there's been global efforts to stop that. But because those global efforts are wanting in terms of enforcement, you've seen occasional stories that it turns out not to have been true, but a Korean doctor claimed to have cloned babies. There's been research in China that really pushes at the limits. Long way of saying yes, I, I think it is somewhat idealistic to expect all of the member states of the world to come together. But if they don't, then you might see a rush towards regulation, much as we did going back through the history of nuclear energy after the nuclear bombs were actually dropped. And so one of the reasons we did get regulation of nuclear energy, one of the reasons Eisenhower did go to the UN and we eventually had the IAEA, is the danger of nuclear energy was not theoretical. People could still see the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And my hope, and I, I confess it's somewhat idealistic, my hope is that we can have regulation of AI without waiting for that to happen. Because if we don't create some kind of IAIA or, or a body like it to prevent the true first AI emergency, we might need to do it very quickly to prevent the second. Professor Simon Chesterman, Dean of the Faculty of Law at the National University of Singapore and author of We the Robots, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Anthony. Good speaking with you. Now, next week on Future Tense, fairness and ethics in the technology sector. 
Among our guests, Margaret Mitchell, who helped to set up the AI ethics group at Google, only to find she was shown the door when they didn't like what she had to tell them. You know, structurally, these institutions are not built to have interdisciplinary and diverse input, you know, cross org in order to do the kinds of ethical things you need to do. So they really haven't been structured in a way where there's communication flow or idea flow that could support ethical work. So a lot of it is trying to figure out how to fit in processes within systems that are kind of not supporting them a little bit difficult to to sort of get in there. And I think that this large switch, this large sort of paradigm switch into more ethical thinking is very different than, you know, how tech companies have been built. So it's uh, sort of like a new era or a new type of tech when you're thinking about bias and fairness. Ethics specialist Margaret Mitchell, who deals with artificial intelligence, among the lineup next week on Future Tense. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karen Sivanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.